and I'm live in the lab. I'm live in the Business Athlete Performance Lab. I'm coming to you with some Sarah, and I'm hoping the audio is going good, Producer Roland. Fingers are crossed. I'm looking at the old WhatsApp right here and hoping you can come give me the thumbs down. So we're coming to you live here on LinkedIn, YouTube. As you guys know, we do it Monday to Friday, noon central time, minus five GMT. Getting over to the main camera right now. We have a guest in the lab today who I suspect wouldn't be a guest we normally would think we would bring into the lab. As we, for the most part, speak conversations of business and athletics and those things coming together, performance, lifestyle, longevity. Although I think Glenn and I can talk longevity. I suspect that's going to be a topic we can talk a lot about. So there you go. We're going to focus on longevity, Keith and Glenn. But Glenn, retired police officer, detective. I grew up reading lots of detective books, so I'm a big fan of that genre. Author and nationally known speaker. Glenn developed PTSD along the way, didn't deal with it, developed some detrimental behaviors that came along with it and has written a book. And I think we're gonna talk about a lot of things today. What I've done also as well is I've taken, taken Glenn's book and I ran it through GPT. So we got some questions coming from GPT for Glenn, questions coming from myself for Glenn. And then what I also did was I took his book and I created a custom GPT. I took some, took, an app, took a platform that we use and took his knowledge and dumped it in there and I created AI Glenn. I was talking with AI Glenn this morning and I told him that before the call and he was like, really? So we'll share AI Glenn with him later, but maybe we'll even interact with AI Glenn today on the show. So why don't we bring in the real Glenn Williams into the show today? Retired law enforcement, Glenn Williams, welcome to Live in the Lab. Nice to have you here today. Thanks, Keith. It's great to be here, and I look forward to this. This will be a new experience for me. That's awesome. So you are in you are in Utah, am I correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Always have always been from Utah. No, I grew up in Colorado, out on the plains in a small farm town, and then I went to college and learned to play and learned a lot about life, but forgot to study my grades. And when I dropped out of college, I moved to Utah to get my for lack of a better word, get my shit together. Yeah, yeah. When I think of Utah, I think of Mormonism. I think of I, I think of a, a culture rooted deep inside of Utah. Am I correct in that assumption? Yes. Back when I moved out here, very much so. It's gotten a lot more loose because tons of people are moving into the state now. I mean, it's a beautiful area. We've got five national parks, the mountains, the deserts. I mean, everything except the ocean. In, is the only environment we don't have. And uh, yeah, so it's starting to change a little bit. I've been through Utah, beautiful state. Like you said, the only thing it's missing is an ocean. In the wintertime, it's a spectacular state. It's beautiful, is it not? Oh, absolutely. I've got, uh, I think, six ski resorts within an hour of me. And, uh, and as you go up, I love this time of year, fall, driving up on my motorcycle up through the mountains. Beautiful, just beautiful. Do you still ski or do you ski? I should say, maybe I should Maybe the question is, do you ski? Yeah, I have. And I don't ski as much now. In fact, I try to head South for the winter because <laughs> I, I really don't want to be shoveling snow anymore. Where do you head to? Wherever. I just sold a condo in Florida. So we used to go there, but my folks live in Arizona. So anywhere warm and we're at the point now, just we can go wherever we want. So yeah, uh, we get the place and go for a month. Awesome. Excellent. That's, that's fantastic. Let's talk of longevity. Let's jump right to that topic. Uh, we often talk about how athletics influence business and how business and athletics are weaved together to build a stronger human. But part of that is longevity. Talk about how you have skied or used fitness or wellness or have not, Glenn, to take care of yourself as a human. How have you taken care of or have you not taken care of yourself? Well, growing up, my father was a coach. Ah. Uh, participated in athletics from the time I was probably seven years old until I even up through college. And the one thing I learned, well, there's a lot of things I learned, especially I just, I played football, was a wrestler and played baseball. And what I learned in wrestling was never quit. That last three seconds of a match could be the deal breaker. And I mean, I've seen friends of mine lose a state championship things I learned, especially because they they thought they had it, and all of a sudden, the last four seconds, they got flipped and lost the match. And I just realized, never quit. Throughout my career, there were times I wanted to quit, but I couldn't. I wouldn't. And that 
helped me stay in for 26 years. And then I finally at 26 years said, you know what? I think I've had enough and it's time to shift into another section of my life. But it was all rooted with dad, wasn't it? Yeah. With dad and athletics. And those are the things, you know, I was never a big guy. You know, I think I graduated at a whopping 135 pounds. And with my senior year playing football, we brought in a defensive coach. He used to play for the Steelers, and I was a linebacker. And he says, you're too small. You give up two, two yards every time you get hit or every time you make a tackle. And I said, yeah, but I'm hitting them two yards earlier than anybody else. So they, he said I was too small, so I moved, and I went to the offense, and I played center on the offensive line at 135 pounds. And we played against big guys, but I was quick enough and uh, I'd just get out and trip them up. I couldn't knock them over. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. But I'd get in their way. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in an era where not having emotional awareness was common. Yeah. Yeah. Not in being encouraged to cry not being encouraged to express oneself. It took me a long time, Glenn, to figure that out as a man, as a male. I figured that I figured out a long time, and, to, and I'm going to suspect to the audience listening, many are, are withholding their emotion because they're they haven't arrived at that awareness yet. Do you know where I'm coming from with this? Oh, absolutely. I was well again athletics. I was taught if you're injured, you don't show it. You don't want to show a weakness that they can take advantage of, and that carried over not only physically but into feelings where we just blocked everything off. You know, I didn't say, talk about things that bothered me. I didn't, yeah, that's the way I was raised. And uh, I never said anything, and I hate to say it, but that's one of the things that led to my first divorce. I quit talking. I never shared anything. Um, I didn't talk about work. And even at work, we were told, <laughs> when I was in the police academy, they brought us in and brought our spouses in for a four-hour session and said, you know, the divorce rate in law enforcement is really high. And guys and gals, you're going to see things that you aren't going to want to talk about, which they're true. There were a lot of uh, things that just hurt to talk about and you didn't want to share with people. And then they said, there's going to be things you can't share because there's an ongoing investigation. So what I had learned as a young man carried over into uh, my law enforcement career and we just didn't share. And then they said, but keep your communication open to your spouse so you don't get divorced. And we walked out at the end of four hours going, and? And what? And so we never learned. I finally learned. I finally figured that one out. It took me 25 years. But I finally figured that one out. At the time, it was just easier not to share, wasn't it? It was just like, no, nah, just don't say anything. So you just kept everything bottled up. Absolutely. Yeah. And that doesn't, that does nothing but rip you up. I mean, eventually for me, it came out in nightmares. I was having three, fours, five nightmares a month. And then the behaviors, which a lot of them I didn't even realize were PTSD related because I didn't know about PTSD back then. And I was diagnosed probably in about 2017. I retired in 2016 and, you know, it was just something we didn't know about. We didn't talk about. And now that we're learning more and more, that's coming through from the military. And my son was in the military and he's got PTSD bad. He was in three firefights a day. For the last six months, he was in Afghanistan, and then he finally ended up getting blown up by an IED. He lived, but he had spent four years at Walter Reed, 40-plus surgeries, just so he, as a 20-year-old young man, could sort of walk again. And, and so we've talked about PTSD and trauma a lot. And it's again, it's something you can't quit. It's an ongoing thing, but you just have to keep working through. And so at least that part of my life and my mental makeup, I can do that. I can just keep going. And now I've learned to go talk about it. And I've learned to talk about trauma because everybody, especially after COVID, everybody in this world has trauma. Small businessmen that lost their businesses and are rebuilding, they have trauma. People, everyday people, like you know, the housewife up the street whose parents both died of COVID and she couldn't go into the hospital to see them. That's trauma. And it doesn't matter what caused it. My son's is much more dramatic than mine. He's told me about some of the firefights he was in. Mine is much more dramatic than the housewife up the street, but the end result's all the same. And that trauma then affects every bit of our communities, every bit of it, whether that be business, whether that be recreation, whether that just be any relationships you have. Glenn, how have you found the strength to share your story over and over with others? How did you arrive at looking in your own mirror and recognizing that 
by you sharing your story and, and your humility and your vulnerabilities, you're making others stronger. It started off with, I started questioning whether I really made a difference as an officer or a detective. And I actually had a couple of people reach out to me that I had worked with back years ago. And they said, oh yeah, you made a difference. And I suddenly realized it wasn't the big things. It was the little things that made the difference. Things I didn't even think about. And that being the case, as I went through my change, I lived up in my cabin by myself for three years and I really learned how to be self-accountable, got back in touch with the real me because I had buried myself and let the, I became, the job became my life. And I suddenly realized I'm not done making a difference. And when you retire, you have to have a purpose or you'll just wither away. You got to have a purpose. You know, I hear guys go, I'm going to go fishing. Yeah, you're going to fish for about two months and then you're going to be bored out of your skull. And I love to fish, but I couldn't do it. That couldn't be my only goal. And so I suddenly realized that if I can shift and change the way I have, if I can assist somebody else in doing it and not making the same mistakes I made, then we all win. And it makes their lives better. It makes my life better for fulfilling a purpose that I had set for myself. And that was kind of, you know, the way it started is kind of strange. I was up in my cabin and I'd been talking to a psychologist friend of mine about putting together a course. And I have an eight-hour training course, a four-hour course, and then I have an hour keynote that I addressed communication relations. And I talked to uh, them, and then one night, one day, I woke up up in my cabin, and it was six in the morning. And you know, it's on my day off. I don't get up at six in the morning on my day off. But I woke up and I grabbed a pen and pencil or a pen and paper, and I just started writing. And I couldn't even remember what I wrote. Just ideas kept coming in. And when I finally showed it to my psychologist friend, I had to read it because I couldn't remember what I wrote. And my writing was so sloppy because I was writing so fast. It was real difficult for me to read my own writing. But I got through it, and she looked at me, and she says, wow, you're 60% done with your class. Finish it now. And it just was an inspiration, um, and I know it. And I'm not afraid to show emotion now either. So, but that one truly spoke to me. And so I knew that was my purpose. And so now I go and I talk about it. And I talk about the things that created PTSD for me or created trauma for me. And then I talk about how I didn't deal with them very well back then and what I would do differently now. And so I give tips, hints, and ways to heal and things like that and ways to have better relationships. Glenn, you talked a few moments ago about how you went away to the cabin. You, you used a, use a term which re really struck me, to make yourself accountable again. It's like it told me you went and s looked in the mirror in that cabin every single day to hold yourself accountable to a new standard. That's a very difficult thing to do, to essentially go and shed your former self, shed your skin. Uh, I had this conversation with, I think it was Eric Degotti yesterday, or was it uh, Clifford Steven earlier this week, about you know, in order to move forward, you really have to shed your former self. Yeah, I, that wasn't my intent when I went up there, and I actually didn't start off that way. I mean, I'm up in the, the cabin, aspens, pines all around, deer, moose running around, and beautiful, and I wasn't even seeing those things. I actually got up at 3.30 to go to work in the morning so I could, because I had to drive 57 miles to work, and then I would come home, and I'd leave at, you know, 4.30 to get to work by six and then I would get off at four and I'd get home about six or seven at night. I wasn't doing anything. I'd come in, I'd make dinner, I'd pour myself a drink. And I was a I was a good uh, a good dude. I only have two drinks a night. But they were thirty two ounces each. And so I was feeling no pain. And I was numb and I wasn't I didn't have nightmares when I did that. But I looked at myself in the mirror one day and realized and just looked at myself and said, What are you doing? The only life you're messing up is your own and nobody else cares. Mm -hmm. You know, my kids cared, my mom cared, but there was nobody else. And I suddenly, that's when I started really making a change and town was, uh, the nearest town was about 15 miles away. And so what I started doing was I'd throw my gym clothes in the car and instead of driving the cabin, because I knew once I got up there, I wasn't going back down. I was tired. I was exhausted. So I'd stop at the gym in town before I went home and I started changing my habits. And then I started really looking inside myself and I went through some in 
personal enhancement training and things, which really opened me up and helped me to really look at myself hard. And what I've discovered talking, you know, I talk mostly with police officers, but what I've discovered is they're not afraid to go through the door when shots are being fired or get in the fights or any of that stuff. That's all external stimuli. And we're not afraid of that. But what I am afraid of most is looking inside myself. And I can speak having done that because I'm afraid of what I'm going to see and that I'm not going to like what I see, which is what happened. And when I teach my classes and talk to people, that is the biggest fear I see in most people is that taking that internal look. And I don't care if you're an athlete, if you're business or what you do, you have to really do it. Cause if you don't have a good personal relationship with yourself, you're not going to be able to have good relationships with anybody else. It's as if society has gotten it wrong for the last pick a time frame a hundred years we've always focused on the end result right what it looks like to be a police officer what it looks like to carry the gun the the uniform the aura of the hero the superhero but where we really needed to start was what's going on up here what's Mm -hmm. going on in here and then we move forward to the rest don't we glenn Absolutely. Um, what I've figured out is you got to get out of the head. You can't let the head run your life because all the head does is warn you that things are going to, it tries to protect you. I mean, just an example, when I wrote my book, I finished it in November and I can't remember which year, but I finished it in November and I had pitched it to a publisher and they wanted me to submit it. So I had submission paperwork. I did all the submission paperwork and the last page was endorsements. And it said they'd like three to five endorsements. I had two. And my head just kept saying, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. And nobody knows who these guys are. It's not good enough. And told me why it wasn't going to work to help me feel, protect me from rejection. If they rejected my manuscript. I, I sat there until February. And one morning I woke up and I used a trick that I had learned in the meantime. It's called five, four, three, two, one, go. Takes the mind five seconds, come up with an objection. And I said, I only had 20 minutes worth of work left to do. So I went downstairs, I woke up in the morning, I said, I'm gonna go finish this today. I went d- downstairs and on the way, I went five, four, three, two, one, go. And I typed on the computer, took me the 20 minutes, I submitted it, and that was on a Friday. That afternoon, I got a call and it said, hey, I'd like to meet with you um, by Zoom. Because the pan- I can't remember this is before the pandemic or right about that time, but I'd like to meet with you on Zoom. And, uh, and talk with you in person, explain the process. So I said, now I'm working Monday, Tuesday, how about Wednesday? And the guy says, yeah, we'll meet on Wednesday. So we did, and he went through all the processes and the timelines and things like that. He says, I'm gonna send you a sample contract just in case you they accept your book. They only meet on Thursdays. And so I'm gonna send you this. And, and that way, you know, at least are familiar with it if they do offer you to publish a book. And I, great, I had Friday, Saturday, Sunday off that week. So I was out in my garage working on Friday and I forgot, I left my phone in the house. When I got back in on Friday afternoon, I had a message from the gentleman from the publisher and he says, congratulations, I accepted your book. I'm going to send you a real contract instead of a sample. My internal fear delayed having my book accepted by six or eight months, six or eight months. And when I finally got out of my head and came from my heart, which is where all the truth is, because the heart will never let you down. Just so what I've learned on that aspect is I get to use this as the computer it is to plan things and work through things, but I can't let it run my life. It's a battle for all of us though, isn't it? That, oh, that, absolutely. That, that fear of rejection, right? And, and where the brain protects you from not wanting to fail. Yeah. When in reality, most likely you're not going to fail. And that all, that all comes back to what we talked a little bit of a minute ago about being in the moment. Well, not we're looking at the end result, but working through that journey step by step. And if we do that, because the past doesn't matter, it's a great learning opportunity. And the future doesn't matter because it depends on what we do right now. And so, and people only spend about 3% of their life right now, here and now. And so we, if we work more on that, the future has changed dramatically. And our brain convinces us, Glenn, that everybody else is going to poo-poo you or look at you or make fun of you or peer pressure you down or 
when in reality, nobody cares, do they, Glenn? That's absolutely true. It, yeah, it gives us all these potential fears and all these potential things, and most of the time they never happen. How many times do we spend in our head going, I wish I would have said this, I should have, would have, could have. Well, it doesn't matter because it's already done. Or it's projecting out and saying, oh, you don't want to do that because this might happen. You don't want to do that. But then when you go do what it's telling you not to do, something completely different happens. Is there a chance for rejection? Yeah. That's uh, simply a learning opportunity. For many entrepreneurs too, you know, who yeah. are wanting to take the next step or are scared of putting themselves out there because of rejection. When I always say to my kids, if at least, you know, Ambition gives you opportunity for failure or success. Just have ambition. You know, without ambition, you're already failing. Without trying, you have absolutely failed, right? So that brain will beat you every single day if you don't get ahead of your brain in your own mirror and say, no, but it's not easy. And I recognize it's not easy. It's not because we're so, it's so ingrained, but you absolutely said it perfectly. If we don't try, we've already failed. So let's take that first step. And then see what the next step is. And then just work for step by step. You know, have a basic plan that your head comes up with. It is there for a reason. It's a great computer. Good. I want to go back. I want to go back to purpose, if you don't mind. Okay. A really great friend of mine and, a, and one of my advisors in the lab, Ray White, big believer in purpose, living with purpose, teaching purpose. I would suggest to you, you have always had a purpose and it's been helping people. You were a police officer for 20 some odd years and now you're sharing your stories to help others based on your life experiences. Have, is, is that what you've maybe had trouble reconciling with? Is your own mirror and recognizing that your purpose, the reason you have been put on this earth is to help people? That's, yeah, that's very possible. Cause I, like I say, I didn't even really realize I had made a difference in some people's lives. I wasn't looking for that. Mm -hmm. but I had. And so as I look around now, yeah, if I can help somebody better a relationship, whether that be their family. Well, and the way I look at it now is I believe in the trickle theory or the ripple theory, excuse me. Mm -hmm. I change me. Then that goes into my family and my family then goes there. And then that ripples out to my job. And then that ripples out to my community. And I foresee that it may take some time, but that little ripple I start and then the little ripples that react around me, and pretty soon it's a tidal wave, and we're changing the world. Especially with your peer group, isn't it? I had a, yeah. I had Clifford Steven on on Monday, who started a company called Booze Vacation. Now you think Booze Vacation go out drinking? Actually, no. He woke up during the pandemic within his peer group and said, "You know what, guys? Like within our demographic, he's like, we're really not being the best version of ourselves by always having a few drinks. So I'm going to be the guy in the group. It's not going to be sober forever, but you know what? I'm going to take a break. Who wants to join me?" Right. Yeah. It was that person standing up and saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to step forward and be the leader and step out of the norm. Not easy for many to do. No, especially we, we've built these little tiny boxes around us. And I know in law enforcement, that box is really tiny. You've got the laws, you've got policy procedures, you've got all this, you've got the expected behaviors. And no matter what career you're in, there are expected behaviors and those are walls. And those walls, they don't protect us. That's why we put them there to protect us. It's what our mind tells us, but they're holding us in and holding us back. Mm. So it's time to get outside those, that box and look at things a little differently. In my healing process, I actually use a lot of, I didn't go to the, the regular medical way and stuff. I went to a lot of outside the box, holistic type healing things that are amazing. And that for me, ultra conservative, mm -hmm. I, I don't, try a lot of when I find something works, I stick with it. But looking outside that box broadened my world. I've met so many great people that are making such huge differences in our world today simply by doing that. Again, you found awareness in your own human being. You know you're an ultra conservative. You just said it. You have your views, your beliefs. Yet somehow, somewhere within your own self, in your own mirror, as I always like to say, you searched for more. Again, very difficult for many people to do who are caught in a belief system, especially within our demographic. Why did you push to learn for more? I don't know. I just knew what I was doing wasn't working. And I, I had uh, pinned myself into an area where I wasn't flourishing. I wasn't unhappy because that's one of the things also I'm really big on is positivity because I know things can work. 
and I know they will work if I put forth the effort. And I'm, that's one, I had a guy that I worked with for 20 some years and he said, man, I don't know how you put up with all the stuff you went through, but, but good for you. And I put that down on personally, I'm stubborn. And again, back to athletics, I learned never, ever quit. Because mm-hmm. if you quit, you're defeated. Mm-hmm. And if you don't quit, there's still a chance. And, and so I kind of applied that to my life as we go forward on. And I got off topic here. That's all right. But as we move on, we can expand those boxes. And that's when I really started looking, going, okay, there's something different out there. I don't like pills. I don't like medicine. I don't like any of that stuff. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try something different. And what I discovered is like Tibetan bowls are metal bowls. They call them singing bowls and they're made in Tibet by monks. And then you rub on them, make tones and they can be very healing. And that's still one of my favorite things to do today because I've actually gone into like almost a trance when I've been treated with it. I mean, I had shoulder surgery twice and the gal put that on there and started rubbing and the pain when it goes away. It's amazing. And so my shoulder moves normal now because it wasn't for a while, just in physical healing, but in the mental healing, it's even more profound. I actually saw a vision. I had started dating and I asked my girlfriend at the time, I said, what do you think about St. George, Utah or Phoenix? And she goes, why? And I said, I have a vision of red rocks. I don't know where it's at, but I have a vision of red rocks is where we're going to be. And she said, well, how about hurricane, which is hurricanes, but it's pronounced her um, in Utah. And I said, where? Oh, she says, I have a lot there that I bought with my ex. And so we went down to that lot and I stood on that lot and there in the back of that lot was like the red rocks I'd seen. So if we open up our mind and our spirit, you'll be amazed at how powerful we are. I mean, just imagination and the things that we can see and the things that we can fulfill that we can't even imagine right now. The human being is, is a wonderful machine. There's no, there's no question about that. So let's take a question from ChatGPT. So the question is the time machine question. And the question was, if you had a time machine, Glenn, and can go back to your first day on the job, what piece of advice would you give yourself that would blow young Glenn Williams' mind? Good question. Wow. Yeah. I would like to say I would overcome. Actually, I would like to say I'd keep my mouth shut a little bit <laughs> and, and not have that persona of arrogance that I had put out there as a defense that I didn't even know I was doing because that created a lot of issues with me. That's what I would say before my experiences. What I would say now is I wouldn't change a thing because the learning opportunities all led to me being able to change myself and the experiences led to me being strong enough to change myself. You said that the arrogance of yourself was your defense mechanism. Was that trained within you? Was that who you thought you needed to be as I'm a police officer and I'm a little man and with all respect, you said it yourself and I'm going to be, I'm big dog here with my voice. Is that perhaps what it was, Glenn? It actually started before. Okay. And in fact, that's one of my field training officer. This first night he pulled me in, he threw me in a room and I had no idea at the time till later, it was the interview interrogation when he put me in the suspect chair, just started yelling at me. And he says, you have the reputation around here as a cocky, arrogant, know-it-all, and I'm going to change that. And needless to say, it didn't start off well, and it didn't end well. <laughs> so, But I had used, I didn't even realize it at the time. My, in fact, my first wife told me, she watched me out playing basketball with the guys one day, and she goes, I never thought you'd ever look at me. And I said, why? She goes, well, just the way you were out on the on playing basketball stuff I watched, you were just above everybody, and I'd never thought you would do that. And I never I didn't realize I was even doing it. But what I realized later is I put that persona of arrogance out and that kept people away from me. I thought I was protecting myself, but in reality, I was limiting my opportunities and my, to have relations with others. And I think that what scared me most was relations with others. Because I look back now, like my senior year in high school, my junior year was awesome. My senior year in high school, the second week, my girlfriend of two years broke up with me. The fourth week, my parents, my dad left and were getting divorced. And then it just went on and on that whole year. And every relationship I had that meant something to me was destroyed. And so I think that's when I put on that persona to hide myself. You, you have indicated you have been divorced. 
Yeah, and I'm a slow learner twice. I have been divorced myself. Talk to me about and talk to our listeners who are curious, scared, wondering. Talk about the experience. You know, the the first one had gotten so bad. I was married 19 years and I was a police officer for I think 12, 13 of those years. And I quit sharing anything about work. And when I came home, I didn't talk about work at all. I stripped everything off the uniform and just put it away and kept my mouth shut. And I didn't realize how bad it had gotten until the day I handed my spouse divorce papers. She says, you can't divorce me. I have cancer. And I'm kind of looking at her going, what? No, you don't. You use health as an excuse for everything. Because she'd been ill for nine years and not, not been really available. And I could blame a lot of things on that. But it was my decision. And I could only change what I contributed. And I didn't contribute a lot during those years. I just shut down. And as I looked through that, that I kind of was a little self-countable. Well, no, I was a lot self-countable. That came up at the cabin and stuff as I started realizing I can't blame others for the decisions I made. Now, I did hold on to things the, so she had insurance to get through the cancer. But then I made some choices that I would never, ever do again. I had an affair. And that's not something I'm proud of. And, but I can't say I regret because that led to my second marriage after we were divorced. And again, as I looked through things there, learning, learning a lot about myself. Again, I blocked all things off during that marriage too, and I didn't talk. And I could blame a lot of things on the relationship on her. And they're, they're true, but I can't change. And that's not my job. I get to change me and make me better. And so after that divorce is when I ended up at the cabin. And I, so I look at those traps. And so would I change anything? Absolutely not. I would like to be a little kinder, have been a little kinder. I would like to have been a little more empathetic and understanding. And I would like to be a lot more self-accountable back there. Those are the things I would shift. But now that's what I do and how I live my life now. If there's one thing I say to my children that I'm enjoying with age is my ability and my self-permission to share my wisdom and experiences with, with them and you and others, right? So when you share your experiences, Glenn, with myself and with the audience, like that's real shit. It's not AI. That's not, that's, so somebody who's listening right now is perhaps in a similar situation, considering a similar situation is, you know, so, so I, I always find myself looking in my own mirror and recognizing that, yeah, this great, this gray hair is earned. These experiences are earned and I'm going to share them. Yeah. Say I, I talk, I have a much better relationship with my kids and we're so open about everything. In fact, I'm, I'm remarried and I got really lucky and have a wonderful lady that we have a great relationship, but the only reason we have a great relationship is because I have no secrets whatsoever. Because you found your superpower yourself, yeah. right? You, you know, you've recognized who it's, it's taking you a long time. It, it's took me a long time to figure it out, but you know, mistakes along the way. I always say this, Glenn, I'm going to go through life. I'm going to have, I'm going to have a list of mistakes and a list of accomplishments. I'm hopeful that over time, the list of accomplishments outpaced the list of mistakes. Well, for a while there, it was the other way around that I had to take some time to figure it out. Right. And, but then it's like, okay, now I'm open the accomplished inside and accomplishments, the small wins every single day, right? The dinner with the kids for Thanksgiving and those little things that you enjoy on a daily basis, not get up. Right. So, and I think that's where you are now in your life, which I'm really pleased to hear. That's where you wake up today is because it's back to being what's your, you know, not back to, but it's kind of the question around what is your superpower? It's yourself, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And I've discovered that, you know what, I'm actually happy with who I am and I like who I am. And that then leads out to the ability and being open enough to let others see that also. And that's the biggest thing is guys, we hide that stuff. Yes. Because, well, I'll tell you what, when you let it out, the change is amazing in you and me, but the change in other people towards us is even more amazing. Yes. Because it's like Nelson Mandela had a talk by Marion Ann Williamson when his first inauguration, and I can't remember the exact quote. I could look it up here. But when we 
let our light so shine, we give others the permission to let theirs shine also. So by changing us and putting that out and letting people see who we really are, then it gives them permission to do the same. Hmm. And that's what makes that ripple effect even more effective. This is good so far, Glenn. You having fun? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah this is great. This is great. Uh, I, I believe, you know, anybody listening right now who's tuned into this would be, I, I think, would be bonding with what you're having to say right now. Let's talk a little bit. Let's lighten it a little bit. Let's lighten it up a little bit. Let's have some fun a little bit. Soundtrack, music. I'm a big I'm a big music guy. I love music. I think music is the soundtrack to life. You reflect upon your life. Let's talk about your soundtrack to your life. Let's talk about the music. Where does it start and where is it today? Wow. I was kind of strange. Well, I wasn't strange. I loved Neil Diamond. In fact, I have a service dog and I named him Shiloh after the Neil Diamond song. It says, Shiloh, when I was young, I used to call your name. When no one else would come, Shiloh, you always came and he's always there for me. So I was a huge Neil Diamond fan and still am. And then, of course, growing up in the 70s and 80s, I got into the 70s rock. And I, so I bounced back and forth. I'm a huge country fan. I like the modern country more than the old twang. Okay. And so I'm a huge country fan, but I bounce back and forth between, like, I love Phil Collins. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then I get into some of the 70s rock. In fact, I just was a tribute band, uh, AC, an ACDC tribute band, the number one band in the country. And uh, that was awesome. So, you know, I, I kind of bounce all over the place. And if I'm in the islands, of course, you got to have the reggae. Of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I find music interesting with our demographic, that 70s, 80s, maybe tickling the end of 60s, but basically 70s, 80s demographic. We're stuck in time, Glenn. ACDC today is the same ACDC back in the 80s, right? And it's just, they'll release a new song, but it's not really a new song. It's a song from 30 years ago. It sounds like it's a new song. And I, I find it, you, you go to any of those concerts, you see any of that content on video or anywhere, and you are actually stuck in time. Isn't that true? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a fun. And I think for us, it brings back old memories. Yes. Well, that's what it is. It's exactly yeah. what it is. And I'll, those were good, good times. I would not change a thing the way I grew up. Yes. So I would be remiss, and people would ask me why I didn't ask these kinds of questions of a former law enforcement officer. So let's ask some of the obvious ones. Uh, you know, and, and bridging in the book, which is bridging the gap, mm -hmm. published, recognized book, praise from Randy Sutton, and so forth. Yep. Give me a story for the audience. There we go. Perfect. Yes. Give that plug. Awesome. Where where can people find that book, Glenn? They can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, and Target. And there were a couple others that I wasn't aware of. I can't remember. When the publisher said to you, we're publishing it, they read the manuscript, they looked at it. Somebody listening to this right now or, or watching us is going, well, why should I read the book? What did the publisher see inside that book in a nanosecond as to why they wanted to write, publish your book, Glenn? The publisher is big into serving our communities, and he saw a need for this type of information to go out and heal the traumas that have been created and how to prevent the traumas from being created and how to deal with them afterward. And so he saw that it, that it could fulfill my purpose of making a difference in some of other people's lives. Interesting. So my question as a detective, the law enforcement question, is there a story or an interesting story that you could share that would keep our audience intrigued or curious or, or interested in that uh, we live in this as you know my friend we live in an attention economy now it's all sound bites right so it's like okay what can glenn feed me in 90 seconds or two minutes that's going to be informative to me or curious to me from a former law enforcement officer former actually with all respect former decorated like i look behind you glenn and you don't just have one badge you don't just have a couple badges you have uh you got a few things going on over there over your right shoulder yeah, those are the badges I wore during the time, 20 years on the lower one and six years on the upper one. And, and there, yeah, were some decorations here or there, nothing major. So, you know, I never served on any task forces chasing serial killers or anything cool like that. But my story is just that of the everyday officer. And that's kind of why I want people to realize that you ought to the officers every day see things that people don't want to see. Mm. They run into the um, way towards stuff that nobody really wants to know about. If you knew half of the stuff that 
officers see every day, you would wonder why they do it. And, yeah. And we do it to serve our community. That's uh, people. I don't like the defund the police movement. I don't like a lot of this garbage that's going out there because it's all built on mostly false narratives. And I get tired of the two minute sound bites, pray something the way it really isn't. And, but that's the world we're in right now. It's a world of no, it's a world of no context. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I saw one the other day and it showed a guy beat crud. He was, it looked like he'd been beaten. Heck, but they forgot to mention that he was armed and that the officers didn't beat him. He was running from them with a weapon, turning back to shoot, to threaten them. And somebody tased him. And when he got tased, he went forward onto the pavement on his face. Okay. They could have killed him, but they didn't. They, they could have shot him. I, w- I don't know if it would have killed him or not, but they didn't. And yet they're being condemned for having beaten him supposedly. And then I read the narrative and it was like, and then I read what really happened. It wasn't even close. You know, two guys were in the car with him. They just committed an armed robbery. They got out hands up and they were taken into custody, no problem. Glenn, is part of the problem that we have as society, we don't recognize the eight hours every single day of banging your head, banging your head, trying to stop the bad guy, running towards fear, running towards bad stuff, banging my head, and then seeing the... And then becoming cynical because how the system works. Well, I just arrested that guy yesterday. Oh, he's back in the street again. Okay, I got to arrest him. Oh, I just arrested that person. Okay, they're back in the street again. So, you know, it's banging the head, banging the head. You know where I'm going with this, right? And then three years later, you've been banging your head. You're seeing you're arresting the same person. And then, I don't want to use the word snap, but then it's like something bad happens and shit goes sideways. And then it becomes a big media force, which is nobody has seen your previous 3,000 hours of your life of banging your head. And now they're seeing this. Is that maybe an an even more micro way to look at it? Actually, I think another way to look at it is, I I read something and I can't remember the exact numbers, but the normal civilian in their entire life sees about eight, maybe 10 traumatic incidents in their life. The normal 20-year officer in 20 years sees over 800 traumatic incidents. And so we're sending traumatized people, guys with PTSD, guys that have witnessed stuff that they don't want to even talk about, out to deal with a citizen who is now in trauma. Because if they're, they're calling for the police, they're not having a good day. They're in trauma. And so we're putting traumatized people out there to work with people in trauma. Then we wonder why there's problems. And a lot of behaviors I displayed with PTSD, I would snap in anger and then back down and go, oh, you know, I'd catch myself, I'd yell with my kids. I'd get home and I'd snap them. And, you know, on the, on the other answer was they come in with a scraped knee and I just seen somebody that had was decapitated. And so a scraped knee is nothing. Ah, don't worry about it. When in reality, all they wanted was a hug and a wipe, have, have me wipe it off. And, uh, and I just kind of blew those things away. And that's what trauma does to us. It, it desensitizes us to minor stuff. And so when we see somebody struggling with something that we consider minor, which is a judgment on our part, which is something I preach about, we got to get rid of judgment, then those, that's where those interactions start. And then the other part of PTSD, I realized when I was working my second career um, at the transit police, I was known as a shit magnet. They knew when I came to work, something was going to happen. And it did. And I got in a lot of foot chases and fights. And now I look back, I heard something about two years ago uh, about the adrenaline thing with PTSD and how we seek that adrenaline. And I suddenly realized, looking at some of those situations, how I talked myself into those foot chases and fights. Like the guy says, what would you do if I ran from you? Chase you, throw you down and take your ass to jail, was my response. And he says, I did not run you. And I said, nah, no, you can't. And I was calm. I said it just like I'm saying it now. But I said, no, you can't. Because I was in good shape at the time. I was 50 years old, but I was running four minute mile at, or four miles at an eight minute pace every other day, just to stay in shape because I was not going to let some young buck beat me, period. That's a competitive part of me. Mm-hmm. But, and so well, he ch- turned and ran and he ran for about a block and a half and I caught him and he went to jail. But I look at it, I, if I would have responded a little differently and de-escalated it instead of just blunt force heft. You can't beat me. I don't care. You can try. I don't care. I'll catch you. You'll be tired when I take you to jail, but who cares? You know, and so I looked at those things that I egged on instead of talking down. 
And those are all PTSD related to issues that I did not even know about until that one a couple of years ago. But there's probably eight or 10 foot chases. I was in over 40, maybe 50 foot chases and fights in my career. And eight or 10 of those I could have just talked out of. Glenn, talk about the power of a hug. Can, do you think a hug could diffuse more situations between two human beings if they could just slow their human being down and be vulnerable and raw and have a hug? Or am I just really naive? It depends on the situation. Yes. I have seen, and I would, I wouldn't do it back then, but I've actually had people come up and hug me and I'm, I've got a weapon on and things, and I don't know if they're trying to get my weapon. I mean, I, back then, that's one of the things I see wrong is we look at everybody as a threat. The number one goal of police officers, and I have spoken across the country, talked to them, is I want to go home safe at the end of the day. And I've talked to them about this. And so that means you're assuming everybody out there is a possible enemy. And if you're seeing everybody out there as a possible enemy, how are you treating them? And how is your interaction with them? And so it's setting things off on a us versus them mentality to start with. And that, you know, so somebody, yeah, I had somebody came up and I just kept my arms straight. I had kept my elbow against my handgun because I didn't want anybody grabbing it. And they came up to give me a hug. And that's all they wanted was a hug. And, you know, the, we can't be defensive. We've got to go out with a little more positive mindset. And so I, I suggest that they shift that. Instead of I want to go home safely at the end of the day, I want to make a difference in somebody's life today. And that could be my own life going home. But by making a difference in somebody's life, that gives me opportunity to also reach out and give that hug without feeling threatened. Glenn, as we work to wrap up our conversation, I'm going to flip on over to one last question from GP2, which I think is a great one. The unexpected skill. What's one skill you picked up in law enforcement that has been surprisingly useful in completely unrelated areas of your life? Awareness. Because... I know when I'm driving down the road, I see things happening half a mile ahead of me. And it drives my wife nuts <laughs> when I go, did you see that idiot? And you go, but it, it, I've become much more aware about what goes on around, which helps me to be more aware of myself. And as I, as I take that step, and I'm aware of where that foot is going, and then I take the next step. And so it helps me progress by being aware, not afraid of, but aware. And so I think that's one of the a big area. I was aware as an 18-year officer, and I'm getting back to the story we talked about, had a three-year-old kid that would, they called him a little Houdini. He would escape everywhere. His parents even put extra locks on the door, and he still got out. I went to work one day, and he's missing, so I responded over. And long story short, we searched for 45 minutes. I had two other officers helping me. We talked to the family. We worked out, and there's a fountain um, in the middle of the parking area of the apartment complex and we're standing there and the fountain is just overflowing with sun. Some teenagers had dumped soap suds in it the night before and the pile of soap uh, bubbles was probably 10 feet high and overflowing out on the pavement. And as we're standing there, a little gust of wind came up and split the suds just enough that somebody looked over her shoulder and saw a red shoe in the water. And it was the little boy. And I did CPR on him until fire got there and they they took him to the children's hospital. I kept everything together, kept the parents, got them into the ambulance, got them going, and got the other kids with some neighbors that the parents requested, got that. And then I stood there, and then it hit me that I had done CPR on this kid for probably three or four minutes. Seemed like freaking forever. And I couldn't bring him back. He ended up not making it. And that was crushing. For the first time in my career, 17 or 18 years, I'd have to look back at the date, but... I had a good lieutenant came over and he looked at me and says, are you okay, brother? And I looked at him and for the first time in my career, I said, no, I'm not. And he says, go take care of yourself. Don't worry about your report. Take care of yourself and then come back to the office and we'll get that all taken care of. And so I went and found a church parking lot and I cried my eyes out for about an hour. And then I went back and began the next day. And that's what people don't see with law enforcement is every day, you go from call to call, from disaster to disaster, from people having a really bad day or really being bad people. And it's never any positive, and it just deteriorates and eats your soul. And that's why it's so important that we open up and share that and being aware of those feelings, being aware of the way things are working and be or not, that is crucial to every part of our life. Glenn Williams, thanks for sharing your story with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs>
I, when I read the, the brief before the show today and you know, looked at the book and I will admit, I, I have not read the book. I, you know, I, I did a cursory, I did a summary, did some interaction with chat GPT. And then it dawned on me what I really wanted to do was talk to you was, I, I know the book is, is the, is the vehicle of your words and, it, and is the end result. But what I really wanted to talk to was you. And I think that's what everybody would want to hear is from you. So I know we didn't spend much time on the book. And, you know, to those of you that are listening, go find Bridging the Gap. I think those that have paid attention for the last hour or have jumped in with some of our, our clips that we cut in will get a lot of value out of our conversation. You're inspiring, Glenn. Thank you. <laughs> you are. You have a story to tell. And I always tell, I tell my kids and I tell people that every story deserves to be told. Every good story deserves to be told. Right. And clearly, you know, your life, your experiences, there's value there. And I just, you know, those gray hairs, those lines on your faces, those experiences in your brain and in your heart, they deserve to be shared because I can tell you there's somebody out there right now who is in a similar situation, almost in a similar situation, have been through a similar situation, don't know where to look. So we always try here in the Business Athlete Performance Lab to bring it back to, you know, taking care of your own human. And that's really how you're ending the show today, aren't you? Which is, it's okay to go take care of your own human. Go look in the mirror and, and have a cry if you need to. Well, it's one thing I learned early in law enforcement. If you're not okay, you can't help anybody else. And they taught us that when we were learning to run code. If you don't get there safely, you're of no use to anybody. And that carries over to our, our mental aspects as well. If we're not okay, we can't be of use to anybody else. And so that's, that's what I'm looking at as a parent, as a business owner, who's got employees, as a police officer who works for the community, as anybody, make sure you're okay. And then you'll be better able to help others. Glenn, thanks for joining us in the lab. If you'll stick around for a moment while I say goodbye to, the, to, our, to, to everybody else. Again, you can find Glenn on LinkedIn. You can find his uh, book, Bridging the Gap, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble all the other great platforms you'll find them go find Glenn on LinkedIn go find him if you or come to me you can see him link you can come connect to me but go and uh, go dig more into Glenn's story I think you'll have a lot to uh, to to catch on there closing out today's show you got Keith here live in the lab it is uh, Wednesday tomorrow we have in the lab same time noon central time we have in the lab on no today's Wednesday tomorrow Anthony Franco joining us live in the lab noon central minus five GMT you can find us on YouTube, LinkedIn, and with the show all cut up and dispersed on X and everywhere else. For Glenn Williams, I'm Keith Billis. I'm here live in the lab. I'm live in the Business Athlete Performance Lab.